It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli. I guess. Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Section 4 of Around the Clock in Europe. A travel sequence. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Ted Leinhart. Around the Clock in Europe, a travel sequence by Charles Fish Howell. Prague, 4 p.m. to 5 p.m. A brooding, stolid city is Prague, the somber capital of a restless, feverish people. It is the hotbed and darling seat of all Bohemia, and Bohemia languishes for her lost independence as Israel did by the waters of Babylon. She does not, however, pine in hopeless despair like the Hebrews, but nourishes a keen expectation of regaining her lost estate and grits her teeth in the meanwhile with fiery impatience. She points, and with reason, to the fact that the Slavs, Czechs, Slovaks, and Moravians easily outnumber the Hungarians. Yet Hungary is free, and she in bondage. And so Bohemia, for all her exterior of gracious courtesy, is bitter and hard at heart, a people of a passionate, thwarted patriotism, a people that has suffered and been degraded, but that has never for a moment forgotten. Prague is an expression of all this, in her sullen, gloomy architecture, in the persistence of national types and characteristics, and peculiarly in the wild, reckless Moldau, which visualizes the traditional savage intolerance that is bred in the bone of the fatalistic Slav. There are too many daws about for Prague to wear her heart on her sleeve, so while she bides her time, she presents a smiling mask. It may sometimes be a rather weary smile, and the forests that engulf her are gloomy and sinister. But her skies are not always lowering and overcast, and the peace of her fatigue from the national struggle is profound. It is just this deep, brooding peace that appeals to the stranger within her gates, and along with it he senses here a wonderful charm and underlying subtility that invests this curious old city with a lambent play of the imagination. It was of Prague that Alexander von Humboldt said, It is the most beautiful inland city I have ever seen, and it must have been of some such spot that RLS was mindful when he expressed the paradox that any place is good enough to live a life in, while it is only in a few, and those highly favored, that we can pass a few hours agreeably. 
Restfulness is surely one of the prime essentials of the highly favored few, and there is no restfulness at all comparable with that we feel in some venerated spot whose present hush and quiet is a reaction from its other days of fever and turmoil. One finds these qualities in Prague, whose calm and serenity seem doubly intense in contrast with its history of tumult and savagery and the hatred and violence that racked and convulsed it for hundreds of years. It has frequently been lightly disposed of as being an out-of-the-way place, but no place is more delightful than an out-of-the-way place, and particularly when it has the natural and architectural beauty of this one, or has been the theater of such unusual and stirring occurrences. Had we but one hour to spend in Prague, we should certainly choose the charmed one between four and five o'clock of an afternoon. The sunshine is then most languid and golden, and the day declines slowly over the castled tops of the Horodshin crowned slope, and the lengthening shadows of towers and turrets creep out on the river, and the copper domes and ruddy tiles of the Neustadt glow in bright spots against the darkling green of the wooded hillsides. If one does not then feel a profound and elevating sense of tranquility and translating beauty, it will be because he has eyes to see, yet sees not. Since Prague rests under the imputation of being out of the way, and even Shakespeare set this inland kingdom down as a desert country near the sea, and lost his compass completely in the shipwreck in the winter's tale, with Antigonus exclaiming, Our ship hath touched upon the deserts of Bohemia, and a confused mariner replying, Ay, my lord, and fear we've landed in ill time. We may perhaps be pardoned for observing that in general appearance it is a wooded valley traversed in its full length by a swift, turbulent river, which follows a northerly course excepting where it bends sharply to the east in the very heart of the city. This stream, the Moldau, rushes along as if in desperate haste to throw itself into the Elbe, and seems to have the one idea, as it dashes through Prague, of getting done with its business and on its way at the earliest moment possible. It has scoured its islands into ovals, slashed the rocky bases of the hills, and continually assailed its bridges and keys. But through all its exhibitions of ill humor, the Praguers have indulgently condoned and even extolled it. It was only when the beloved and venerated Karlsbrücke fell a partial victim to its violence a dozen years ago that patience ceased to be a virtue and the unnatural marauder was comprehensively anathematized with all the sibilant fury of the hissing tongue of the Czech. Speed apart, there is little to complain of with the Moldau. It is broad and of a pleasant deep blue, and the beauty it supplies to the setting of the city is supplemented by the importance of its traffic, the amusements on its many little wooded islands, and the delights of its boating and bathing. In a word, it is a noble stream, and none the less bohemian, perhaps, for being a little proud and headstrong. As the afternoon sun lies heavy over Prague, one notes with delight how snugly the old city nestles along the river and up the hillsides of the valley, and with what a natural and comfortable air. Not at all as though trying, as newer cities do, to shoulder its suburbs out of the way. 
It seems a perfect type of the medieval town, with buildings of solid stone of an agreeable and universal creamy tone, foursquare and enduring. It abounds in quaint, high-pitched roofs, in curious turreted spires, in red tiles and green copper domes, and in objects of antique and archaic fascination. Shade trees are everywhere. Indeed, from the thickly wooded heights of the surrounding hills right down to the river quays, the gray of the houses and the red and green of the roofs make beautiful color combinations with the feathery foliage. One stands on the old Karlsbrücke and looks upstream, and there he sees the rocky heights of the Wishirod Hill, on which the fair and wise Labusa reared her castle when she laid the foundations of the city thirteen centuries ago, and which he will want to visit later to look over the fortifications and to study the glowing frescoes on the cloister walls of the Benedictine monastery of Amaus. In the elbow of the Moldau, downstream, he will observe the old sections of Prague huddled together in cramped confusion, with no sign left of the ancient separating walls that once defined the original seven districts, though he is to learn, by and by, that the early names remain unchanged, the Oldstadt and the Jewish Josephstadt, and around and above them the Neustadt, which, of course, from an American time point, is really not new at all. On his left, along the river, he sees the Kleinseite spread out, and on the hillside above it that far-famed Acropolis, the redoubtable Rodchen, with its dusty, barracks-like royal and state palaces, and the great bulk of the Cathedral of St. Vitus rising out of it like some man-made mount. Such is the first bird's-eye impression of Prague, set in its wooded slopes, stolid and softly colored. Later on, one can scrape acquaintance with its rambling, flourishing modern suburbs to the eastward and downstream, and wrestle at his pleasure with such impressive nomenclature as Kerlinenthal and Bubnoholshevitz. Between four and five o'clock, the visitor will find an especial pleasure in noting the activities that prevail in the several little green islands that fret the impetuous Moldau as it hurries through this hundred-towered golden Prague. The dearest of these to the sentimental Czech is bright Sofianincel that you could almost leap onto from the stone coping of the neighboring Kaiser Franzbrücke. It always wears a gay and inviting appearance with cafe tables set under fine old oaks, but precisely at four summer afternoons, the leader of its military band lifts his baton and launches some crashing prelude, and the noisy company instantly stills and with nervously tapping fingers and glowing eyes abandons itself to that music passion which is the deepest and most intense expression of the bohemian temperament. It gives the dilettante a new conception of the power of this inspiring art to observe the significant and varying expressions that play over the faces of a Prague audience under its influence. He witnesses then the profoundest stirring of the Slavic nature and the moving of emotional depths beyond the conception of the reserved and impassive Anglo-Saxon. Especially is this so when the music is of a national character such as the Mavlast symphonic poems of Smetana, or a Slavic dance of Dvoriks. These Bohemian masters, 
with their fellow countryman, Fibich, constitute a trinity that is reverenced in their native land to an extent that almost passes belief, and that has done so much in making Prague one of the foremost centers of Europe. The music from the Sophian Insel floats down the river to our vantage point on Karlsbrücke, mellowed and softened, and contributes just the right pleasing note to the agreeable mood these picturesque surroundings excite. The ponderous, antique old structure on which we stand has the appearance of some full-page color illustration for a charming middle-aged romance. For half a millennium it has dug its broad arches into the bottom of the Moldau, stoutly defiant of flood or storm. Its massive buttresses are crowned with heroic statues so deeply revered that pilgrimages are made by the faithful to pay their devotions before them. For a third of a mile this old veteran strides the stream, and at each end he lifts an amazing medieval tower well worth a journey to stare at. These ponderous structures, weathered by centuries of storm to a rich brownish black, are pierced by a deep Gothic archway through which the street traffic pours all day. Their sides are decorated with colonnades and traceries, armorial bearings, and statues of ancient heroes of the city, and their tops are incredible creations of slender turrets and of pointed roofs so desperately precipitate that they seem like long, narrow paving stones tilted end to end. Catholic legend and ceremonial run riot on the old bridge. The statues are almost altogether of a religious character, and two of them, the crucifixion group and the bronze one of St. John Nepomuk, are practically never passed without the sign of the cross and the raising of hat or cap. In the case of the latter, the devout will touch the tablet that marks the spot from which he is said to have been cast into the river, and then kiss their fingers and bless themselves. For St. John Nepomuk, of all the holy martyrs, was Prague's very own. The legend is dramatic. Father John was the queen's confessor 500 years ago, and when he declined to oblige the king by revealing what the queen had told under the seal of the confessional, his majesty had him summarily cast into the Moldau, from just where we are standing at the center of this bridge. The result was far from the expectations of the king, for not only was the poor priest preserved from sinking, but, which is quite as hard to believe of so swift a stream as this, he actually remained floating for four days at the very spot where he fell, and five bright stars hung above him all the while. When they took him out, he was dead, and to this extent only did the king succeed. As was perfectly natural, the amazed proggers could see nothing in all this but an astounding miracle and when Catholicism had finally displaced the Protestantism that followed the Hussite Wars for 200 years, their clamor for the canonization of Father John eventually resulted in placing the name of St. John Nepomuk in the catalog of Rome. Equipped with a saint all their own, they adroitly converted the statues of the Protestant John Huss that stood here and there about town into St. John Nepomuk's by the simple expedient of adding a five-starred halo to each. Now, if today were the 16th of May, St. John Nepomuk's special day, we should behold the greatest festival of all the year. An altar would be erected beside his statue, here on the bridge, 
and mass celebrated before enormous kneeling crowds. Bohemian peasants would flock into town for miles and miles around in all the picturesque finery of the national dress. Gala performances would be given at the theaters, and a special illumination of the city made at public expense, and fireworks displayed tonight on shoots and insult. It would be an orderly celebration, too, for the Czechs are more fond of dancing than drinking, and religious enthusiasm would be practically universal. For Prague, which for two centuries was exclusively Protestant, now numbers at least nine Catholics out of every ten of its people. As we look about us this afternoon, we derive a vivid consciousness of being very far from home, set down in an environment that is, for Europe, oddly foreign and unfamiliar. The soft, sibilant prattle of the Czechish speech is heard on every hand, and the names on cars and corners are outlandish to us, with their profusion of consonants and curious accent marks like our O and V. One sees a great disproportion in numbers between the German and Czechish population. Only 13 to the 100 are said to be German, but in the opinion of Bohemians, that is too many. For the stubborn struggle for the existence of the old national speech and spirit against the threatening usurpation of the Teutonic invaders is a real matter of life and death. As we watch the crowds throng along the bridge, the prevalence of the Slavic type is very noticeable. Short of body, heavy of head, and with high cheekbones and coarse features, the general expression is one of settled melancholy, bred of their peculiar fatalism. Having heard the Bohemian girl and read the foundationless libels of popular French literature, one looks about for gypsies. He will be lucky if he finds one. Bohemia, as he should have known, is one of the leading industrial countries of Europe, and Prague is made up of hard-working, skillful mechanics. Energy and resolution are stamped on these serious, rugged faces, on the powerful men, the tall, strong women, and even on the little black-eyed children, and they can do many worthy things well. They market the country's rich coal and iron deposits, make garnets to perfection, and manufacture beet sugar by thousands of tons. Who has not heard of Bohemian glass or Pilsner beer? And shall we belittle the resourcefulness of Bohemia, with the prosperous resorts of Karlsbad and Marienbad well within the western boundary of the Bamerwald? If this does not convince, one has only to run over to Dresden, 75 miles away, which he can reach by rail in four hours at an outlay of but eight florins, and ask anyone where the finest farm produce comes from and what section yields the best fruit and honey, butter and eggs, milk and cheese. If now we can manage to look away from the bridge and its crowds, we shall observe that the afternoon activities of the river life of Prague are manifold and highly interesting. There is a prodigious bustling about of longshoremen on the fine, broad keys, and boats of many descriptions and diversified cargoes are laboriously struggling upstream or drifting guardedly down. From time to time, huge, unwieldy rafts pass along to the din of vigorous shouting and hysterical warnings. Bathers at the riverside establishments are adding their share of laughter and frolic, their diversions watched with vast amusement by the afternoon idlers loitering along the embankments. On our right, 
The shaded walks and trim lawns of the popular Rudolph's Key are comfortably filled with a leisurely company of promenaders and of nursemaids airing their charges. All this contributes an agreeable note of homeliness and contentment and seems eminently in harmony with the prevailing serenity and peace of the surrounding groves. There is at hand a little chain footbridge, which they call the Kettensteg, and in a beautiful clump of lindens at its end rise the sculptured porticos of the classic Rudolfinum, Prague's noble home of the arts and industries. Enter it, and you find whole halls devoted to the work of Bohemian artists, with a school of old Theodoric of Prague represented in surprising completeness, an entire cabinet filled with the engravings of that famous Prager, Wenzel Hollar, and many of the most beautiful paintings of such celebrated Bohemians as Gabriel Marx, Václav Brozik, and Joseph Maines. With artistic bridges arching the river in whichever direction you look, with music and soft voices welling up from the gay islands, and with a full and virile life at cry along the quays, you find yourself about as far removed as possible from the atmosphere of Longfellow's beleaguered city. Quote, Beside the Moldau's rushing stream, with the wan moon overhead, there stood, as in an awful dream, the army of the dead. End quote. Assuredly, there is no army of the dead at this hour beside the Moldau, whatever there may be under the wan moon in a poet's eye. On the contrary, there is an army of the living, a quarter million of them, and it marches without resting, day in and day out, along the Graben and the stately Wenzel's plots, and through the venerable grocer ring and the narrow crooked alleys of old Josephstadt. Walk east across Karlsbrucke, pass under the Gothic arch of the somnolent Altstadt Tower, with a stony statue of Karl IV on your left, and you will shortly emerge on the grocer ring and can settle the matter for yourself. This fantastic ring is the oldest and most famous square of the city, still preserving its ancient appearance. You find it in an irregular quadrilateral, surrounded by quaint, gloomy, colonnaded houses, churches, and dilapidated palaces. There towers in its center a somber memorial column called the Marienzoyla, commemorating Prague's liberation from the Swedes at the close of the Thirty Years' War. The very first thing to catch the eye is the singular Tinkirche, the old Gothic church where John Huss so often preached, where their astronomer Tycho Brahe lies entombed in red marble, and in whose shadows, through five centuries, many of the bloodiest events of the city had their inception and execution. The influence of Huss on the Europe of his day was so great and has continued so long that it is hard to realize that he had only reached his 46th year when the Council of Constance sent him and his friend, Jerome of Prague, to the stake. The old Teinkirche, where he so often attacked the doctrines of Rome, still rears its battered and darkened bulk from behind a melancholy row of colonnaded houses and gazes solemnly and patiently over them at the noisy ring, its lofty spires curiously clustered with airy turrets like hornet's nests on some old tree. Directly opposite, the modern Gothic rothouse shoulders up to the moldering tower of its predecessor, whose famous clock has delighted its thousands with the surprising things 
the automatic figures do when the hours and quarters roll around. Just at hand, a portion of the old Erker Capella still stands in excellent preservation, and you could not find more beautiful Gothic windows in all Prague, nor finer canopied saints, nor more richly sculptured coats of arms. Before this building, a place of hideous history, the best blood of the city was spilled after the fall of Bohemian independence at the fateful Battle of the White Hill, three centuries ago, when 27 nobles were butchered here on the scaffold. A dozen years passed, and again blood soaked this earth, with a stony-hearted Wallenstein executing 11 of his chief officers for alleged cowardice at the Battle of Lutzen. Prague still shows the palace of Wallenstein and those of the other two famous generals of his period, Gallus and Piccolomini. The Clam Gallas Palace is just at hand, and the Husgasa, distinguished for its beautiful portal, flanked with colossal caryatids and sculptured urns, and surmounted by a marble balustrade wrought with the perfection of life. A final note in the old-world charm of the grocer ring is contributed by the ancient Kinsky Palace, adjoining the Tangkirche, in the elaborate Baroque architecture despised of Mr. Ruskin. People in the manner and seeming of today walk and talk, barter and sell, under the nodding brows of these historic buildings, but the visitor stands among them unconscious of their noisy presence and the spells such storied surroundings cast on every phase of fancy and imagination. There is a peculiar fascination about aimless rambles in Prague. Modern improvements have come, of course, but many an old and rare landmark has been reverently preserved, with the result that you can scarcely turn a corner or cross a square without coming face to face with some fantastic and blackened architectural fragment that holds you spellbound with wonder and delight. Whole sections, indeed, are of such a character, as you would find were you to fare forth from the grosser ring and seek adventures by crossing the Kettensteg and invading the region beyond the Rudolfinum. With almost the suddenness of tumbling into a river, you would find yourself groping, even at this bright hour of the afternoon, in the black and twisting mazes of the old Jewish ghetto that still goes by the name of Josephstadt. Here you have at once all the detail and color of a romance of the Crusades. Everything appears aged and eccentric. The time-weary, saddened, ramshackle houses project their upper stories feebly and seek to rest their wrinkled foreheads on one another. Tortuous, winding alleys that you can almost span with your outstretched arms reel giddily all ways from a straight line, plodding wearily uphill and sliding helplessly down. On all sides there seems to be a general feeling that nothing matters, that everything comes by accident or caprice. Over the frowsy heads of slovenly children quarreling in the doorways, glimpses are to be had of dark and filthy interiors from which foul orders escape to the street. Long-coated, unkempt patriarchs of Israel lope solemnly by, with rounded shoulders and hands clasped behind, and if you follow in their wake, you will sooner or later arrive at a curious, melancholy rothouse that is a rare jumble of architectural orders and has an extraordinary steeple that might once have done time on a Chinese temple. 
This very inclusive structure, persisting in its oddities to the end, makes a great point of staring down at the gaping crowds out of a big belfry clock that has one dial Hebrew and one Christian. But a single marvel is as nothing in this old wonderland where, as Alice would have remarked, things become curiouser and curiouser. If your eyes popped at the Rothaus, what will they do at the gaunt, barn-like synagogue next door? Here is the thing that every visitor to Prague goes straight to see. Its early history is lost in legends, but you will be disposed to credit them all, even to that one about the Prague Jews fleeing from Jerusalem to escape the persecutions of Titus. Once you have seen its doleful walls and breakneck roof, and have passed through the narrow black doorway into that shadowy tomb of an interior. Brass lamps depend by long chains from the smoky ceiling, but they only intensify the gloom with their feeble light and deepen the feeling of creepy depression. Visitors are told that during the horrors of the Hussite wars, this black hole was literally packed with the bloody corpses of Jews, and that, in a bitter spirit of defiance, no attempt was made for 300 years to efface the frightful stains. Little wonder that the Prague Jews evolved out of their hatred an ancient malediction that ran, May your head be as thick as the walls of the Rodshin, your body grow as big as the city of Prague, may your limbs wither away to bird's claws, and may you flee around the world for a thousand years. It is like escaping from a sickbed to come out of this chamber of horrors and cross the street to the quiet and hush of the wonderful old ghetto cemetery. Here we have another of the sights of the Josephstadt. In the refreshing coolness of its elder trees, one looks about on as extraordinary a three acres as can be found anywhere in all Europe. The Jews insist that they have buried here for twelve or fourteen hundred years, and inscriptions can be found that date back at least half that far. By the simple process of spreading new layers of earth, this plot has been packed with graves six deep, and all that was accomplished a hundred and fifty years ago, the cemetery not having been in use since the middle of the eighteenth century. The closeness of the black, mossy tombstones and their toppled and huddled look suggest the troubled shouldering of some gigantic ghoulish mole at work deep down in the horror-crowded darkness underground. The ancient tribal insignia of Israel are found graven on these tottering slabs, the hands of Aaron, the cup of Levi, the double triangle of David, the stag, the fish, etc. And here and there you come across those little piles of stones heaped on graves that mark a Jewish act of reverence for the resting place of some long-buried ancestor. Hold to a generally southern direction in your afternoon stroll through the narrow ghetto alleys, and shortly you will meet with a fine reward in the shape of a face-to-face -face contemplation of one of Prague's most cherished antiquities, the Pulverturm. They may have once stored powder here, as the name implies, or they may not, but almost anything looks to have been possible to this sturdy brown survivor of the Middle Ages under whose broad Gothic archway the 20th century crowds are passing day and night. Set solidly down in the thickest stream of traffic, it has the look of those unconquerable obstructions that have to be tunneled through. 
It looms above you, a great, dark, dusty mass, out of time in every particularity of design and decoration. Stubbornness and defiance are expressed in every line, and with its atmosphere of drowsy aloofness and mystery, there is such an element of loneliness among such modern surroundings that one could almost believe he sometimes hears the old veteran sigh. Certainly you would say it is brooding over memories centuries dead, so incongruous and distrait is its seeming, so anachronous are its whimsical turrets, fantastic roof, statues, arms, and sculptured traceries. This impression of isolation is enhanced as one reflects that the most ultra-modern of Prague's new buildings all stand within easy range. Could one of the Pulvertum's ancient archers take up a position in any of those lofty turrets and wing an arrow from his stout crossbow toward what quarter of the heavens he chose? When you have passed under the arch of the Pulvertum, you have entered the Graben and so reached the business heart of the city. The Graben has nothing today to suggest the ditch that its derivative source implies, unless you fancifully regard it as a moat of the modern commercial ramparts. On the contrary, it presents a busy array of all the leading hotels, shops, restaurants, and cafes. Overhead trolley cars splutter along it, and you see gray stone buildings of irregular roof lines with skylight dormers in the tiles and Venetian blinds in the windows, narrow sidewalks decorated in mosaic designs, and active throngs of strong-featured men and bareheaded, vigorous women whose chief pride of dress concerns itself with capacious aprons elaborately embroidered. Were you to visit the second-story cafes, whose gay window boxes look so inviting from the street, you would find games of chess and checkers in progress at this hour, and more than one merchant who had stolen from his shop to have a look at the Prager Tagblatt over a glass of Pilsner or three fingers of the plum brandy they call Slivovitz, or a dram of chai, which is tea and rum, or a cup of tay, which is just plain tea and cream. Coffee and chocolate, of course, would be found in general demand. One passes out of the Graben into the fine boulevard of the Wenzelplatz and at once exchanges bustle and uproar for the quiet and dignity of the most beautiful and stately avenue of the city. It is broad and well-paved, with buildings of elaborate design, with shop fronts protected by bright awnings and with fine shade trees every few yards along its entire length. At the corner of the Stadt Park, one finds a beautiful cascade fountain, and beside it a noble building which is the center of all that is best and most intense in the new movement for the reviving and vitalizing of the national spirit among Bohemians, the new Bohemian Museum. Were you to enter it, you would doubtless be astonished to see how many souvenirs of Bohemian history have already been assembled there, autographs and documents, ancient musical instruments, art objects, flails of the Hussites, and scientific collections, such as the intellectual Bohemia of today. From this pleasant stroll, one wends his way back to the Karlsbrücke, and as he passes the buildings that still remain of the ancient famous university, 
thoughts are kindled of the wonderful renown this institution had six centuries ago when it was easily the foremost educational institution of the world. 15,000 students from every quarter of the earth gathered to hear its celebrated savants, and the revels and achievements of those days have gone down in prose and rhyme. 5,000 students still attend, two-thirds of them Czechs and the others German, but the revelry of today is largely the bitter and bruising encounters that are continually arising between these conflicting hotheads. The intellectual impulse is strong in Prague. It has polytechnic institutes, art schools, and learned societies, and one of the most famous conservatories of music in the whole of Europe. The west bank of the Moldau, the Kleinsite district, was royalty's region in the olden time when Bohemian kings and queens dwelt in the huge Rodschen on the ridge of the hill. Seen from the Karlsbrucke toward five o'clock, the long slope rises toward the declining sun with many more suggestions, even now, of the pomp and circumstance that have departed than of the modernism that has taken their place. There is a dreary and saddening array of closed and boarded palaces, arcaded and many-windowed, whose owners are rich and powerful Bohemian nobles with a preference for the gaieties and frivolities of the court life of Vienna. One regards with especial interest the long, rambling one of Wallenstein, to make room for which 100 houses had to be torn down, where this rival of royalty retired in the interval of imperial disfavor and held magnificent court with hundreds of followers and attendants. Among the many chambers of that great honeycomb was one equipped as an astrological cabinet, for Wallenstein always had faith in his star. How vividly it recalls the Schiller dramas and the operations of the uncanny Saini. Such a man, exclaims a character at the conclusion of Wallenstein's tot. Born a Protestant, he well nigh became their exterminator, turned Jesuit. The Jesuits distrusted and hated him. With his sword, he made and unmade kings and carved out principalities for himself. And yet he was but 51 years old at the time of his assassination. Like an aged soldier nodding in his armchair in the sun, the Wallenstein Palace, once passion-rocked and treachery-haunted, basks this afternoon in an atmosphere of the intensest calm and peace. To ramble through it is to learn history from a participant. One courtyard, in particular, is so serene and lovely as to be really unforgettable. One entire side of this enclosure is a lofty, echoing logia, three stories high, with arching spans for a roof supported on graceful, towering columns. Within the logia are heavy, sculptured balustrades and a broad flight of marble steps flanked by huge stone urns leads to a beautiful open space of soft lawns bordered with simple flowers. It was a favorite resort of Wallenstein's, and he called it his Sala Terina. In its present mellow and half-deserted beauty, it is a place for a poet to dream away a life in. Staring gloomily down on the Kleinsida and set solidly far above it on a precipitous hill, the rugged old Rodschen, Prague's Acropolis, 
warms into mild, ruddy tones in the afternoon sun. I have said it reminds one of a barracks, such an enormous, rambling affair as it is, though its commanding situation and impressive proportions would immediately suggest to a stranger some more consequential employment in other days. Undoubtedly, it is the most striking feature of Prague. One might think it a solid architectural mass, as seen from the Karlsbrücke, but on closer inspection it resolves itself into a series of separate structures falling into irregular groups, but which, taken together, composed the setting of the imperial court during the long period of Bohemia's independence. That splendid fragment, the vast cathedral of St. Vitus, supplies a worthy centerpiece and is full of interest, too, with its rich Gothic windows, chapel walls set with precious stones, marble tombs of the Bohemian kings, and the wonderful silver monument to St. John Nepomuk. Indeed, the whole Rajan abounds in rich surprises. Such, for instance, is the venerable church of St. George, awkward and archaic, which has stood for 900 years and is the sole memorial in Bohemia of the earliest period of Romanic architecture. Everyone, of course, hurries to see the rude royal palace of the Hofburg on the edge of an adjacent steep hill, from the windows of whose consulate Zimmer the imperial councillors were defenestrated, and the Thirty Years' War, in consequence, precipitated upon the troubled states of Europe. And then there is the Archbishop's Palace, across the quadrangle from the Hofburg, in whose courtyard the church authorities impotently burned the 200 Wycliffe books that John Huss had loaned them with a challenge to read and, if they could, refute. Two grim towers on the eastern extremity, the Dali Borca and the Black Tower, have no end of creepy legends of tortures and prison horrors. The former takes its name from a romantic knight, Dalibor, who is said to have been long confined there, and of whom and his solacing violin we hear at pleasant length in Smetana's opera of that name. One of the most curious sights of the Rajan is the low, drawn-out Loretto church, with a maximum of frontage and a minimum of depth, like city seminaries for young ladies. Among the red tiles of its steep roof, giant stone saints perform miracles of precarious footing, and out of the center of the facade, on a base of colossal spirals, rises an antique belfry spire set with domes and turrets and bearing aloft a huge clock dial like a burnished shield. Surely, somewhere in this Rodchen wonderland occurred the unrecounted events of that much-interrupted narrative of the King of Bohemia and his seven castles, which Trim tried so hard to tell to Uncle Toby Shandy. And may we not be confident that the charming Prince Florizel, whose strange adventures Stevenson has so gracefully recounted, once lived in courted perils in these romantic surroundings. It is to be hoped that every visitor will have more than one hour in Prague, and then, of course, he will want to go up to the Rodchen and loiter through and about it at his leisure. He will find large and beautiful gardens where he can rest under noble trees and enjoy an inspiring view of the city and the pleasant companionship of statuary and fountains. 
When he has exhausted this viewpoint, he can secure quite another from the colonnaded verandas of the Renaissance Belvedere. Or perhaps, better still, he will journey out to the picturesque abbey of Strahau, embowered in blooming orchards that are vocal with blackbirds, and from its yellow stuccoed walls look down on the dense forests of the Lawrenceburg sweeping in billowy green to the very banks of the Moldau. At this hour, a sharp point of light, seen from the observation tower on the summit of the Hasenberg, marks the location of a little white church on a distant hilltop. And when you have been told all about what happened there at the fatal battle of the White Hill, you will have listened to the bitterest chapter in the whole history of Bohemia, and will know how the national life of this kingdom gasped itself out three centuries ago in the panic and rout of the Winter King's ill-managed soldiery before the fierce infantry of Bavaria. There fell the state won by the flails of a fanatical peasantry whose sonorous war hymn, Ye Who Are God's Warriors, had so often struck terror into the ranks of the finest armies of Europe. Those were the men whom the furious Ziska led. Ziska, the squat and one-eyed, the friend and avenger of Huss, John Ziska of the Chalice, commander in the hope of God of the Taborites. Such was the terror in which this dread chieftain was held by his foes that they feared him even after his death and declared that his skin had been stretched for drumheads to summon his followers on to victory. Since the Battle of the White Hill, there has been little for Prague in the way of war except sieges and captures, and it has mattered little to her whether it was Maria Theresa come to be crowned or Frederick the Great come to destroy, or the Swedes of Gustavus Adolphus come to plague and offend. Suffering has been her regular portion. During the Thirty Years' War alone, Bohemia's population declined from four millions to fewer than 700,000. The stranger on the Karlsbrücke will turn from thoughts of Ziska's peasants to regard with increased interest the occasional specimen of the countryman who strides past along the bridge with no embarrassment at appearing in the streets of his capital in the costume of his nation. Behold him in his high boots, tight buff trousers, well-embroidered blue bolero jacket with many buttons, broad lapels and embroidered cuffs, his soft shirt puffed out like a pigeon, and the jaunty Astrachan cap cocked to one side. And there, too, marches his wife, boots laced high, bodice bright and abbreviated, petticoats short and broad and covered by a wide-bordered apron, her arms bare to the shoulders, and her headdress of white linen very starchy and stiff. Sometimes one passes wearing a hat that suggests Spain, but he too, as they all do, wears the tight trousers and the close-fitting knee-boots. In time, one learns to distinguish the Slovaks and Moravians by their long, sleeveless white coats, tight blue trousers, and white jackets with lapels and cuffs embroidered in red. One hears many interesting things about these peasants. Throughout the year, it is said, they fare frugally on black bread and a cheese made of sheep's milk to which is added an occasional trout from the mountain streams. The great age some of them attain speaks well for the diet. 
Strangers who go up into the hills to stalk chamois and have a go at the big game come back with surprising stories of the inherited deference that is still paid in the country to caste. They will tell you that the peasant still kisses the hand of the lord of the soil. The prager thinks highly of his country brother, though he finds a vast amusement in observing his rustic antics when he comes to town on St. John Nepomuk's Day and shuffles about the streets, wide-eyed and gaping, after the manner of Ross and Erba the world over. Curious stories are told of peasant customs. Christmas is their day of days, and preparations for its proper observance are made long in advance. They believe it to be a season when evil spirits are powerless to injure and may even be made to aid. When the great day arrives, the cottages are scrupulously cleaned, fresh straw laid on the earthen floor, and the entire household assembled for a processional round of the outbuildings. In the course of this ceremonial parade, beans are carefully dropped into cracks and chinks of the buildings with elaborate incantations for protection against fires. Bread and salt are offered to every animal on the place. The unmarried daughters are sprinkled with honey water to ensure them faithful and sweet-natured husbands. The family drink of celebration is the plum-distilled Slivovitz. What effective use the great national composers of Bohemia, Smetana, Dvorak, and Fibich, have made of the native melodies and costumes. Smetana, a friend and protege of Liszt, the master utilizer of Hungarian folk themes, was determined that Bohemia, too, should have music of a distinctively national character, and in his eight operas and six symphonic poems, as well as in his beautiful stringed quartet, the Carnival of Prague, he abundantly realized his ambition. There is no more popular opera played in Prague today than his Bartered Bride. One hears a great deal of Smetana in talking with the people of this city, of his poverty and sadness, his final deafness, and of how, when fame at last crowned him so completely, he was dying in an asylum here. Music is a favorite topic of conversation in Prague. A violin player in one of the local theater orchestras was no less a person than the great Dvorak, a pupil of Smetana's, and he too added to Bohemian musical glory with his Slavonic rhapsodies and dances and the splendid overture that he constructed on the folk melody Cadet de Mauve Mouge. There was a sort of Bach-like foundation for all these composers in the early litanies of the talented Bishop of Prague. The Czech temperament finds its natural expression in music. It is even insisted that their most popular movement, the polka, was invented by a Bohemian servant girl. Certainly there has been no lack of beautiful legendary material on which to construct effective compositions. These traditional stories are all full of sadness and superstition, and they always revolve about simple, natural elements, the rain, the mountains, the valleys, ghosts, and wild hunters, and above all, that most recurrent and universal of themes, love. Could we win favor with some old progger this afternoon and entice him into the sunny corner of Carl IV's monument place beside the bridge where we should close out our hour with many a captivating and romantic story that would alone have made our visit well worthwhile? 
Such, for example, is the legend of the spinning girl. Deserted by her lover, she wove a wonderful shroud threaded with moonbeams, and in this she was buried, and by its magic she appeared to him on his wedding night and lured him to leap to his death in the river. And there is the story of the wedding shirt. A girl implores the virgin either to let her die or restore her absent lover who, unknown to her, has been dead some time. The virgin bows from the holy picture, and forthwith the pallid lover appears and conducts his sweetheart by a midnight journey to the spot where his body lies buried. Thereupon ensues a desperate struggle by fiends and ghouls to capture the soul of the girl, who is finally rescued by the interposition of the virgin to whom in her terror she appeals. The wedding shirts that she had brought as her bridal portion are found scattered in fragments by the sinister spirits on the surrounding graves. The flight of the maid and her ghostly lover is vividly depicted at length and is expressed in translation by such lurid lines as, quote, O'er the marshes the corpse lights shone, ghastly blue they glimmered alone, end quote. One of the most romantic of these legends is the golden spinning wheel. A king loses his way while hunting and stops for a drink at a peasant's cottage. There he finds a marvelously beautiful girl to whom he eagerly offers himself in marriage. This girl is an orphan with a stepmother and stepsister who are cruel and jealous. Under pretense of accompanying her to the king's castle, they lure her into a black forest and slay her taking great pains to conceal her identity by removing and carrying with them her eyes, hands, and feet. They then proceed to the castle, and the wicked daughter successfully impersonates the good one, whom she closely resembles. Seven days of wedding festivities ensue, at the end of which the king is called away to the wars. In the meanwhile, a mysterious hermit, a heavenly messenger in disguise, takes up the dead body in the forest, dispatches his lad to the castle, and secures the eyes, hands, and feet by bartering for them a golden spinning wheel, a golden distaff, and a magic whirl. Thus equipped, he miraculously restores the girl to life and limb. When the king returns from the wars, he invites his false bride to spin for him with her new golden wheel, and forthwith the magic instrument sings aloud the whole miserable story. The furious king rushes to the forest, finds his real sweetheart, and installs her in his castle, while the murderers are mutilated as she had been and cast to the wild wolves. It may be thought that I have gone somewhat out of my allotted way in taking such notice as I have of the superstitions, customs, and music passion of the Bohemians, but I cannot believe that a satisfactory idea of Prague can be had in this or any other hour without some conception of the fundamental traits that so powerfully sway this people. For the real significance of the city lies deeper than its surface showing of wooded hillsides sown with quaint buildings and a broad blue river rushing under many bridges. It is its peculiar raciness of the soil that underlies the Czech's mad devotion to his capital. Expressing, as only Prague does, so much that is dear and beautiful to him, 
It centers in itself the most burning and passionate interests of the race. Without some knowledge of this desperate attachment, one would fail utterly to grasp the force and truth of such a fine observation as Mr. Arthur Simmons has made on the devotion of the Bohemian to this city. Quote, he sees it as a man sees the woman he loves with her first beauty, and he loves it as a man loves a woman more for what she has suffered. End quote. End section four.